You're listening to Leading Up with Udemy. This podcast is your guide to developing your skills as an emerging or seasoned leader. I'm Alan Todd, your host and the Vice President of Leadership Development at Udemy. Together, we can work, lead, and live differently to create a better world. I was super excited to have Elizabeth Page on the podcast this week. I really love how Elizabeth frames giving feedback in the positive, not looking backwards about what someone did something wrong, which can be viewed as disempowering, but looking to the future, which is much more empowering. We want to open people's minds to grow and change and be willing to learn to adapt and pivot going forward, right? Because isn't that the objective? It's not catching people doing something wrong. It's helping to coach people to be more successful. This week, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Page about all things feedback and how to manage successful teams through difficult times. Elizabeth is a leadership coach and former executive across the public and private sectors, including at the World Bank. She's a Udemy instructor who's taught over 25,000 students through her immensely popular courses on leadership. She's also an expert in cross-cultural communication and holds a master's degree in systems engineering. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Alan, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thanks. So I want to start with managing teams through difficult times. I think the world we're in right now There's hybrid work, there's AI, there's mental health issues that are rising, there's social unrest, and the pressures to perform have really fallen on the backs of leaders, particularly frontline, middle leaders, and you teach about this very topic. So I want to just start with, what are the keys to leading in these challenging times? Well, that is certainly a very big question for every individual, but there are some universal rules and practices that we can also think about. So certainly the level of stress, the level of performance, the expectations that are set upon people, it really can drive up that sense of wanting to accomplish more, but for a certain price. And then we know when we're leaders that we have to get results through other people. Whereas before we were successful because we ourselves were responsible for delivering these results. And so this level of self-awareness is very an important starting place for people to recognize what are their strengths, what are their opportunities to grow, and then what is the impact that we have on other people, particularly our teams. So I would start with understanding that there is individual and there's corporate or enterprise. We can look at ourselves as the individual, relating to other individuals, and then we can also take account of the bigger picture. What's the corporate leadership culture like? So how did you do this at the World Bank? So It was interesting. When I was at the World Bank, I was tasked the very first day I showed up with a challenge that came from the World Bank president to our entire department. 
the bank president came in very upset that we reported to the board of directors. We could report publicly, but we weren't reporting to the management of the bank. And he insisted and said, I'm your client too. I want something on my desk in six weeks. And that was my introduction to my role and responsibility. What it meant was that I came into a brand new team to create a brand new process, providing them with a product that nobody wanted, and to do it in a time period that everybody said, that's impossible. And what I discovered was that indeed, we were not only successful in creating a new process, a new product, and doing it in a very timely way, we actually got all of these people who were resisting the change on board. So what was the lesson I took from that? It wasn't that I created magic. I created indeed an innovative process, but what it did was it put the spotlight on the people who normally never get recognized for the deep work that they did. And by bringing that work directly to the bank's president, there was a great deal of stress and worry because they really got into the spotlight. But when they recognized that their recommendations could actually impact the bank's growth and its pursuit of becoming a knowledge bank as well as a lending bank to countries, that they recognized the kind of power they had when before they didn't have a voice. And so we actually were awarded the first innovation award brought in by the bank's president. So before we get into innovation, there's another deep lesson here about the importance of winning over others in big change. And that's what I took away from your story is that there were people that had big ideas and big things and doing the great, deep, hard work, and it wasn't being visible. And so I wanted to hear about how does the leader get the spotlight off of themselves and onto the people? And how do you win over others in big change? You can have a vision, but if it's out of alignment with people's values, that they won't respond regardless of, you know, how important it might be or the kind of change, big or small, people will resist change if there isn't something in it for them. And so we have to know what our values are, align those with the vision, and then we have to discover and respect the values of other people. And in the communication, we have to be able to use our voice. But the words alone are not enough. In fact, we know that the words only carry about 7% of the impact of our message. Well, how are we communicating if the words are only about 7%? It is our body language or the visual cues that we give. Now you're saying we work in hybrid environments. We work in virtual environments. What do we do when we can't see the visuals? We listen to the tone of voice. And the tone of voice will convey the emotional authenticity. In other words, it's really hard to mask how we feel with our voice. Our voice will reveal the degree of energy and commitment, the enthusiasm or the hesitation that we have in taking on a challenge. So becoming self-aware of 
the tools that we have at hand as a leader is really critical. Knowing them, bringing them into alignment, and then applying some of these practices. So take, for example, in a really practical example, let's say that you have somebody who had been a peer and then they get um, elevated into a supervisory, managerial, or even a leadership role. And one of the values that this person would have is to make sure everybody's happy, that there's harmony in the organization. And when you're working as a peer, you can do a lot to make sure the people are happy, that you don't ruffle the feathers, you don't rock the boat, for example. But when you're asked to be a leader, you're expected to challenge people, rock the boat, challenge ideas, and do things differently. We'll have a new dilemma, because what if you want everybody to get along, and then you have to hold people accountable? If we hold people accountable, they might get distressed, upset. They might not even agree with what we have to say. So, what our instinct will tell us to do is, I'll oh, let it slide. It'll work itself out. That's because we reverted to a value of let's everybody just get along. But we're not fulfilling our responsibility nor our fiduciary authority as a leader if we keep letting it slide. So what are we going to do? We may have these competing values, but we have to make a decision to make one value dominant over another one. So let's say you might also, as this new leader, say, I have integrity. I do what I say. I say what I do. Well, if you want everybody to get along, but you also have to treat people equally and hold them equally accountable, you now have a conflicting value. You can't continue with this dilemma because you'll simply be playing ping pong. And people will see that as a lack of leadership and a lack of integrity. So we elevate the value of integrity because as a leader, we say that's the value I have to portray for people to trust me. And as leaders, we have to earn the trust of the people that we're leading so that they will eventually see this may be a good way to go. Yeah, there's so much to unpack, Elizabeth, and everything you just described and change. But I'd love to hear a little bit more on just conveying emotional authenticity. Any tips or or habits or things that we can practice advice for how we can become better communicators, taking all that into account? First thing we can do is take responsibility that if our message isn't getting through, it's not because somebody didn't hear us or they misunderstood us. It's because we lacked clarity. And you might say, I was perfectly clear. My English was just fine. I used the right words, etc. And they're not performing according to the requirements. But yeah, we have to take a look at, is our voice and body language aligned with the words that we're using? So take, for example, the amount of energy. Think of a, your favorite performer on stage, for example. Uh, you might be a Taylor Swift fan. You might be a Beyonce fan, for example. And think about the level of energy 
that they are bringing from their corporal space and projecting out to an audience, not just to one, but to tens and thousands of people. So there's a degree of the energy. And we say that when we communicate, our voice is the fuel through which we will energize and move our communication across time and space, whether it's through a microphone, through a a video setup, if you are in an audience, in a boardroom. So we have to use that internal energy to project our voice. It's the fuel. So a quick example is that if you had welcomed me to this program and I said, Ellen, I'm really glad you're here. This is a very serious topic, leadership, and I think we're going to have a really dynamic conversation. I I don't think you'd believe me, right? You'd probably be going, oh, no, I booked the wrong person. <laughs> checking your emails, right? Oh, I think I've got, I've got a, a text message I have to return. Why? Because my, my tone of voice didn't match the words. There was right. something that was incongruent. People will trust your body language and your tone of voice before they will believe the words. So that's why we want to bring these three elements, your voice, your vocabulary, and the visuals aligned together. Yeah, I love it. So voice, vocabulary, visuals, as you described, like Taylor Swift, think about the number of hours that she spends first writing the songs, then practicing and performing, and then rehearsing everything for a concert. Like, as you describe what great leaders do. I think the lesson there is that that we really need to invest time in practicing our communication style so that we're communicating with our body and our visual cues and our tone of voice. So I want to sort of flip this. You talked about like these reluctant people and they have the power to slow down big change efforts and how we have to win them over and leaders win them over. And I'm wondering if we flip it to from the challenging situation, it's not an emergency but the changing state of the global economy. And it's really about moving the business forward and innovating. And you talked about Procter & Gamble successfully knocking down these barriers to drive new innovation. And I wonder if you could tell us, like, how did they do that? What were the keys to success there? Well, it's a great story because, again, it illustrates that there are always challenges, even for organizations that decide to make innovation part of their corporate culture. And this is what Procter & Gamble decided a number of years ago. Now, this is a company that's been around for over 120 years. So you might say it's a legacy company, not just because of how long it's been around, but what it does, the nature of its work. It's not a high-tech company. It is, you know, the soap suds that you use to wash your clothes. It's the the detergents in our toothpaste, etc., So they didn't think of themselves as being on the leading edge, but they began to recognize that they were coming up against greater and greater competition. And so people had greater choice on where they could go to get very similar products. So the CEO at the time decided that he wanted to develop a longer term strategy. So he decided that Procter & Gamble would become an innovation company. 
And they did the usual corporate consultation. Everybody around the boardroom was nodding their heads, signing off on it. Yeah, this is a great idea. We're all in. But in reality, what was a three-year strategy for innovation took seven years to implement. And you go, wait a minute, you're the CEO. You're the decision maker. Why did it take so long? And what they didn't realize in that corporate culture is that though people, the middle management, would always agree to go along with the strategies, in practice, the middle managers weren't willing to take the risk that was required to fund and resource these new innovations. So their budgets were put on the table when it came to funding new and innovative projects that came from other people who used the chemistry, that used the vault of intellectual property, and created partnerships to create new products under the Procter & Gamble banner. So there was resistance, and the resistance choked each of these products en route to market. So by the time they discovered all of this, they recognized something that they called the dead zone. And this is what leaders we have to do. We have to recognize that people have self-interest in everything that is happening. And they, their self-interest might actually dominate the decisions rather than the benefit for the whole organization. So because they weren't willing to take the risk, they choked the new products yeah, one of my questions about this story is the these middle managers, I assume they have the company's best interests in mind, and yet they nod yes all the way while subconsciously saying no. And I just wonder why that is. It's understanding incentives and people's values and being able to encourage people to um, agree to something, to operate on, under the best interest that is of the whole organization. So they have to be willing to see that bigger picture. And when you know you're a team member, when you begin to give up some of that self-interest for the best interest of the team and the stakeholders that you serve. So being aware that there are people who may be withholding information or resources and then dealing with them proactively to remind them and, and to align what their values are and how they're going to benefit in the organization will make a big difference in terms of the transformation that's required. If you leave people to their own resources, they may continue just to you know, make decisions based on what's the best interest for them. But we as leaders have to draw them a bigger picture for them and get them to buy into something that is the benefit for everybody. buzz around Gen AI isn't going anywhere. Leaders and managers are key to identifying how their companies can use the technology and creating a plan to grow their employees' skills. Learn how Udemy can help at business.udemy.com forward slash Gen AI now.
So you talked about um, the leader. So you're this newly rising leader and you want happiness and harmony, but it's not all happy and harmony because there's this idea of in driving performance, sometimes we have to give feedback and feedback's scary, right? Nobody, nobody wants to hear, you know, feedback hurts their ego. So can, can you talk about how, how do great leaders provide feedback that actually works? When we invite people to talk about feedback and, and improve their performance, they'll often feel very uncomfortable. In fact, they'll, it will trigger defensiveness in people. And there's a very simple reason that people, I would say, generally have the best intentions. They come to work every day wanting to do the best they can. And they work to that. Some days are better than other days. And life happens at work as well as at home. And so people's performance doesn't always measure up. But when we approach people, and we do it with the idea of making sure that it's fact-based information, we will cite something from the past. And we'll say, I've got some feedback for you. You remember last week at the meeting, you were making a presentation. And all the slides were, were too busy. There was way too much information. So people didn't get the message. Well, what's happened to the receiver of that feedback is that they thought they had given a great presentation. They were operating on the belief that they have done well, and now they're finding out that they underperformed. And the surprise, the shock, the disappointment, they're no longer even listening to our conversation. Because in our mind, we've moved back into a defensive position, and that is, Wait a minute, why didn't anybody tell me before I get what, you know, gave that presentation? They begin arguing and justifying what had happened in the past. The problem, of course, is that we can't time travel. We can't go back in time and change whatever it is that's being cited. So we're automatically at a disadvantage. Well, we don't want to do that. And so I would suggest that we want to abandon this idea of citing things from the past. It's not that it's fact-free, because people actually will recognize when they have a new awareness that maybe that wasn't as strong as they had hoped it was. So they're going to be looking for opportunities to grow. But if they knew what they were themselves, they would be acting on it. Well, what's the job of leader? It's to actually think it through. Think through what's an action a person can start taking. You see, it's easy to tell people what to stop doing, but that's not helpful at all. <laughs> it's easy to provide constructive feedback, um, tell them what they did wrong. Your PowerPoint slides were too busy. That that feels a lot easier to me than what you're describing as this whole future-focused, um, strength-based approach. Yes, you put your finger on the real issue here. You see, leadership is hard work. It's hard work, but it's not the visible work. We do this work as we prepare to engage and coach our team members. So we think it through carefully and think, okay, what happened there? What action can that person take going forward that would help them be more successful and us all to accomplish what the team is working to finish? 
We can agree that people have the best of intentions. They come to work wanting to succeed. And if we offer them a way to be successful, guess what? They've opened up their mind instead of closing their mind down. And they're going, yeah, I'd like to try something differently. What did you have in mind? Now, why would they do that? You want to give them, I call these the ABCs, an action to take. The B is the benefit to that person. And then C is putting it in the context. Now, sometimes the C in the ABCs, action, benefit, and context, can be the cost because not everybody is happy to make a change. They might, as those middle managers did, they might go, yeah, sure thing, sure thing. And nothing happens. That happened to one of the operations engineers that I worked with. And he kept going into the warehouse without wearing his safety equipment. Now, the staff in the warehouse got upset because they said there's a double standard in this organization. If we don't wear our safety equipment, we're going to get written up. We could even get have our pay doctor lose our job. And here's management walking around, and they don't have to wear follow the same safety rules. So it was brought to the the operations engineer attention the first time. Yeah, sure thing. No, it's no problem. Was brought to him a second time. Sure thing. And no change. So the third time around, when we talk about what's the benefit and the context or the cost, he had to be informed that they were now going to have to take action. And here's why. It's not that people didn't like him. No, it's because he put the entire company at risk. If he was injured, if one of the warehouse people were injured because of him, then the the organization, the company could be sued, they could lose the company, and everyone would lose in that scenario. And guess what? He found the motivation when he found out that the price was that he was going to be written up and offered a different job if he couldn't comply with the the requirements. He started wearing his safety equipment. So the ABCs are anchored in reality, but it comes back to the leader to think it through and create a pathway for other people's success, giving them an action to take, a reason to change a habit or a behavior, and then that bigger picture, because we all love to belong to something that's bigger than ourselves, knowing that we're creating real value for our stakeholders. Yeah, I I love the whole future focus and and your positive intent, right, makes perfect sense. But if I think about in receiving feedback, and it's back to the best leaders actually hear their concerns and they they can listen. But it's really hard to listen when I'm when my amygdala takes over and my heart's pounding, <laughs> and you're telling me something, and I've I'm now way past my ability to listen. So I'm wondering, how do we hear feedback? How do good leaders do it? But how can we do it if we're if we're not a leader? What do we need to do to listen through that pounding heart and hair on the back of the neck going up? Oh, this is such an important question for every person. And it's actually comes to life every day in all of our interactions because our, our survival instinct is primal. And so we will have that amygdala hijack you described 
the moment that we intuit a threat to our safety. Now we know that today we probably won't be attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. So it isn't the same kind of physical threat that our body has, has created as a survival mechanism for it, but it is a psychological threat. And if we're afraid that our reputation has might be put at risk because of maybe this feedback, if we feel that um, we have been unjustly accused of something and that we need to defend ourselves, etc. So what can we do? The first thing I would invite you to do is to think about listening. And I love this metaphor. We want to use listening like a garden trowel. This garden trowel is a tool to uproot the weeds in our garden, those weeds can be our assumptions, our cognitive biases. But if we pause and we listen long enough, we can get past those weeds and hear other people and they will bloom. And so listening is really at the heart of leadership. And there's a, an acronym I, I use to help teach some of the listening skills and how we go about listening and receiving feedback. Because remember, we lead by example. If we can receive, if we can invite people to give us feedback as a leader, we'll demonstrate the values and the skills of true growth and continuous learning. And the, the L in listening is learning. Having an open mind and being willing to constantly learn, pivot, make changes, and do better. I think of the I in listen as identifying the other person's values. Because when we can align and we appreciate somebody else's values, we can align what we're asking them to do with what's most important to them. And the S in listen is we have to suspend our judgment. Many people, when I teach this, they'll go, oh, I've heard this before. I know where this is going. Just cut to the chase. We don't say it out loud, but that's what we're doing. Just come on, come on, come on. I want to give you my advice. I want to tell you what to do next. I know where this is going. We get so impatient. But the S really is suspend our judgment to listen longer to people so that we can actually hear what they're saying and not what we assumed. The T is creating transformative versus transactional relationships. And what that means is that we're not in it for the short term, we're committed to the long term. Why? Because when we're leaders, the whole focus is now on the relationship and getting results through other people. That's what leaders do. And it requires a transformation in that relationship to move away from the transactional. Finally, the E is being empathetic, our emotional quotient, our EQ. We have to be able to listen. Remember we talked about the tone of voice? Somebody will be using words like, yeah, I get it, I get it. But their tone will be yeah, I get it. I, I just think you should choose somebody else for that role. I don't think I'm the right person. That's a tone of voice. They may not be, they're going, yeah, but their voice says, I'm afraid. So that's what empathy is. Finally, N is the negotiation. I call any communication negotiation because it's the dialogue to discover options and alternatives. It's how we create value as a leader. The value isn't sitting at face value. 
The value has to be mined. We are the miners looking to make visible what's invisible and creating new value, not just saying that, you know, what exists is enough. Let's put this to the test then. When we we talk about what does it mean to create new value? It sounds like, you know, a nice thing to say, but what does it really mean? Well, there's a story of two kids in the kitchen and they're fighting over an orange. Now, you're the parent somewhere else in the house. And of course, your first attitude is ignore it. They'll figure it out. But eventually it escalates to you've got to go out into the kitchen and go, what's going on here? And one of the siblings is saying, that's my orange. I got it first. I need that orange. And the other one is grabbing it out of her hand and going, no, 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 it's my orange. Well, what would you do? No, I always ask this question. People say, take the orange away and and eat it yourself. And some people say, cut it in half. But what do you have if you have an orange, you've got two people that want that orange, and you've cut it in half. Alan, what would you say? Are they 100% happy? 50% happy? Unhappy. (laughs) They're unhappy. Yeah, they're just totally unhappy. So you didn't solve anything. You just made a bigger problem. So how do we create something when you think it doesn't exist? We can't invent two oranges. But what the parent does says to one of the siblings, what do you want it for? And they go, I have an assignment. I got to make marmalade. I need the zest, which is made from the skin of the orange. And you turn to the other sibling and say, what do you want the orange for? And they say, I just came back from soccer practice and my coach said I have to hydrate every time and I have to eat an orange. And you go, okay, so we're going to give the fruit to one and we're giving the skin of the orange to the other. Now, Alan, you have 100% because one kid got what they everything they wanted and needed. 100% to the other kid who got what they needed and wanted. What's the percentage? If you take 100% plus 100%, what do you got? 100%. 200. Okay. If you add them together, I suppose <laughs> you get two. But everybody gets what they want. And guess what? That's where new value is created. That's the power of a negotiation. That's the power of alternatives and options. But you see, we stop too soon because we see the problem is an escalating fight. What do we want to do? Stop fighting. But we didn't actually solve anything. We made two unhappy people if we jumped to the easiest thing, put a Band-Aid on versus getting to the, the core issue. So if you do root cause analysis, you ask some questions, you go, oh, so this is what we need. And that's what leaders do. We pause long enough to be in the discomfort and we live with that discomfort long enough to discover what's really required, what the real opportunity is. And then when you come back with that, you've created new value, more value than when you started. And so leaders have to stand in the space of discomfort. We have to stand in the space of the unknown. And most people hate that space. That's why change is resisted, because people don't have the guarantee. When they do the work the way they always did the work, they always know what they're going to get. But we know innovation doesn't reside in what's the same. It can only reside in that uncertainty. And leaders have to have the courage to coach other people to stay strong 
in uncertainty and see the outcome that comes later. And that's when you'll know that you create a new value and that you are a valuable leader. And that's when people will trust you and follow you and you will be, you know, creating something worthwhile with your leadership and for all your stakeholders. Well, that was a beautiful way to bring us to a close. So as we wrap up here, we have a question that we ask all our guests, and that is, Elizabeth, what are you curious about and learning now? Oh, (laughs) what a great question, because it lights me up like a Roman candle. I am so enthusiastic about artificial intelligence as a co-pilot for leaders to create this new value, this new frontier, and to literally challenge the status quo in such a way that we can accelerate creating a, a future that we can live in that will create greater justice, social justice, equity, greater diversity in the world. It's a real investment in the future. And the power of of artificial intelligence, I think, is that it creates that compounding interest. Einstein said that it's the eighth wonder of the world, compounding interest. And it's where you accrue increasing value with every iota of innovation, awareness, trying something new, challenging the status quo and coming up with a different approach. It doesn't always have to be successful. It's the journey. Oh yeah, that lights me up. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) Well, that is beautiful, Elizabeth, and I can't wait. As the future unfolds, I'd love to have you back sometime to hear six or nine or 12 months from now where you're taking the future of leadership and leading in an AI world. Thank you. It's been so much fun. Thanks again to Elizabeth Page for joining us today on the podcast. Follow Leading Up, a podcast from Udemy Business, wherever you find your podcasts. We'll be back next Wednesday with another episode to help you level up your leadership skills. Follow the show so you never miss a new episode. And if you like the show, leave a rating or a review. We love the feedback and it really helps us to find new listeners. To learn more about Leading Up or how Udemy can help you develop leaders at scale and move business forward, visit business.udemy.com. The Leading Up Podcast is produced by Udemy in partnership with Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, Alex McManus, Amy Machado, Brian Rivers, Michelle O'Brien, and Carter Wogan. Our original theme is by Soundboard. <laughs>